Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question, how do imagination and creative thinking interact with each other? My guest is Dr. Amy Kind, the Russell K. Peitzer Professor of Philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. We discuss whether creative thinking and imagination are skills you can develop, and I learn how both imagination and creative thinking help us all become more empathetic. So come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. as we uh, get started here. Um, do you mind sharing with us your own journey into how you became a philosopher and uh, how did you get interested in imagination and creativity? What led to you writing this book? Uh, great. So in terms of how I got interested in philosophy, um, I guess it all started in high school, actually. I was um, taking a class called, I think it was called History, uh, Shaping of Western Thought or something like that. And it, so it wasn't specifically a philosophy course, but we ended up reading a lot of the great Western philosophers. And so that just made me get interested in the subject. So then when I went to college, I um, decided to uh, take a class in philosophy and one class led to another led to another <laughs> i wasn't sort of going in there saying like hey i was i'm going to study philosophy i just kept exploring and kept taking more and i liked it hmm. um and then all of a sudden i realized i was a philosophy major um it had <laughs> happened um still wasn't you know convinced that that was going to be my career or anything i for a long time i thought i well actually for a long time i thought i was going to be a journalist um hmm. so i worked on my high school paper, I worked on my college paper. Um, and that's really where I thought my career was going to take me. But for various reasons, I decided not to pursue journalism. Then um, when I was in college, I was thinking that maybe I was going to be a, a lawyer. Um, so I was uh, toying with the possibility of law, toying with the possibility of graduate school and philosophy. It was the summer between my junior and senior year. And I said, you know, I don't want to study for more than one entrance test for <laughs> um, a postgraduate possibility. Like I'm either going to study for the LSAT or I'm going to study for the GRE to go to grad school in philosophy. And um, so I just tried to figure it out and decided to go to grad school in philosophy. So anyway, that's how it happened. It wasn't really a master plan. It just kept uh, one step led to another led to another. Um, and then uh, in terms of how I got interested in imagination, that also wasn't a master plan. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was at UCLA in graduate school, and UCLA is really, really good um, in philosophy of language, especially at the time I was in graduate school. A lot of people working, a lot of famous philosophers of language working. And so we were doing a lot of reading of um, philosophers like Frege and Russell. And then we were also reading uh, Kripke, Naming and Necessity. And there's a part in Naming and Necessity where Kripke is talking about whether this lectern um, is, which is made of wood, whether it could possibly be made of ice. And then he talks about, we can't imagine it's being made of ice. And at the time um, when I was reading that passage, I just kept thinking that Kripke was going from the fact that he didn't think that the lectern could be made of ice 
to sort of backing up to the claim so we can't imagine it. And I thought it should sort of go the other way around. Like, let's figure out what we can imagine, and then we can figure out what we can draw from about possibilities, what claims we can make from the fact that we can imagine them. Right. So I really, again, just like I didn't have this master plan to go into philosophy, um, I didn't have a master plan to work on imagination. I just wanted to figure out what was going on in that passage and thinking like, oh, well, if we could get clearer on imagination, we could understand better what's going on in um, these modal arguments, arguments about possibility. And all of a sudden I started working on imagination and here I am, um, oh gosh, lots of, several decades later, a couple decades later, um, still working on imagination. So, well, so, oh, much so that's cover. how I got yeah. into it. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, and in terms of um, the book, uh, the, the book that's coming out um, on imagination and creative thinking, so I was um, invited to do that by the editor of the Cambridge Elements series in philosophy of mind, Keith Frankish. And um, I was just excited about it because I hadn't done much work on creativity before, although I'd always been interested in it. And so it seemed like a good opportunity to expand my interest in imagination. And um, I'm really glad I did. I've, I've loved thinking about creativity. Yeah. And, that, uh, you know, I got to read a, a draft of the book and uh, really appreciated um, help me to understand the purpose of the series. It seems like it's kind of introductory for the most part. Yeah, it's introductory. These are small texts. So it's kind of like, I, I feel a little weird even calling it a book. I've been calling it a monograph, I guess, yeah, because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. so short. Um, but uh, they're aimed to prov to be like, I don't know, what does the back cover say? The definitive introduction to a, a particular topic or something like that. So yeah, it's not meant to presuppose any background knowledge on the topic. And what I do in the, well, I'll keep going with the word book, but anyway, sure, in the sure. monograph. Um, so there's part that introduces readers to the study, philosophical study of imagination. And then there's... Um, a part that introduces readers to the philosophical study of creativity, creative thinking, then a section that brings the two together um, to talk about the role of imagination and creativity and how the two are connected. And then the last part of the book does a sort of case study where I think about imagination and creative thinking with respect to artificial intelligence and artificially intelligent systems. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently uh, not just about the sentience of artificially intelligent systems, but also about whether we can have imagination machines, whether machines can do something creative. And so I thought that would be a nice way to explore issues about imagination and creativity um, and see sort of how where the theories take us. So that's what I do in the, again, book. Yes, I'm, I'm using yes. scare quotes. Um, <laughs> that's what I do in the monograph. And uh, I hope that uh, it will be a useful introduction for folks. Yeah. And it really was, um, you know, obviously I just got to read a draft, but uh, it really helped situate me in the field and to helped me understand if I wanted to go in any certain direction, who, where I'd want to go read more, right? Which is, should be the point of an introduction in philosophy. So I think you did cool. a great job. Uh, it's so it's imagination and creative thinking. When is that um, coming out? If you don't mind, I should have that. But yeah, no, it's uh, I think it's slated for the end of August. Okay. Um, so depending on when this all goes live, it um, hopefully will already be published. Um, but uh, 
It will be available both, I think, in an actual hard copy, um, but also I think you can get an e-copy. Yeah. And uh, I think your mention about artificial intelligence and all the talk around it kind of leads me to, I think, a good just set up question to this entire issue. Um, Why do it, it seems to me, at least, why do people seem to get so uptight? Why is there so much tension around creativity and imagination? Um, you know, in general, like it's funny how like when you start defining it, people get uncomfortable. But with AI, there's definitely been some uh, there's a there's a lot more emotion involved than I, I you might expect. Huh. It's an interesting question. I have to think a little bit about that. Um, I guess part of it must have to be um, an intrinsic sense of ourselves that we want to think of ourselves as special. Right. Um, and. And we're holding out for like, in what respect are we special, right? So like, oh, well, maybe the machines can outsmart us in various activities and maybe they're going to beat us in chess and maybe they're going to beat us in Jeopardy and they're going to beat us in Go. But surely we're going to be more imaginative and creative than they are. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Um, we like to we like to think of humanity as special in a way Um uh, that differentiates us from animals and uh, non-human animals, and that differentiates us from machines. Um, and then I, I think maybe I could also turn what I was just saying about thinking of ourselves as special. I can sort of turn it around a little bit, see if this works. But um, when we look at a machine and we see, we think of the machine as just. Um, a manifestation of its programming, right? So it has this programming and all it can do is what its programming allows, right? It can't go beyond its programming. It's all programming generated, these algorithms or whatever. And then we see the machines um, producing various things that look very creative or that look very imaginative. And then we start to look at our own outputs and we think, whoa, wait, were those just the results of algorithms and programming? Are we nothing more than a collection of programming too? And so that makes us feel uncomfortable about ourselves and about how we like to think about ourselves. And hey, a lot of philosophy is discomfort. Um, a lot of philosophy, I mean, a, a lot of good philosophy should make you uncomfortable or should make you ask, let's put, let me put it this way. A lot, of, a lot of good philosophy should make you ask uncomfortable questions. Um, you have to be willing to confront, I think, the uncomfortable questions if you're going to um, engage in in a real study of philosophy. So I hadn't pushed the AI analogy specifically to make people uncomfortable, but if you're bringing up the idea of a, of a sort of tension that comes up when we, or we get nervous or something when we're talking about machines and creativity, maybe, maybe that's that's why. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... Uh, and I just I realized, you know, for our listeners, I think uh, some of them may be familiar. But just to be clear, when we talk about imagination, can you give kind of a philosophical definition? Because I remember even when I first got into philosophy, the idea of talking about imagination was really fascinating. And then I got into it and I was like, OK, I understand why they defined it this way, but it is slightly different from everyday speech. Right. So can you give ah. a philosophical definition of imagination? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope that what we philosophers are talking about when we talk about imagination at least connects to what ordinary folks are talking about. Yeah, it definitely connects. Yeah, no, no. It's not like completely two different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it might be kind of like a Venn diagram of sorts, but um, as always, we philosophers are going to um, try to get um, more precise or something, um, make ordinary language. Try, try to figure out what we're talking about in ordinary language, but then we're trying to work with something, um, something more precise. Uh, um, actually, you, let, if you don't mind, I, I, okay. it's funny that you combined imagination and creative thinking, because when I first got into philosophy, I think where I, I was confused by imagination, and a lot of it was in Kant, who has very specific types of imagination, right? But it was that, right. uh, I think it was because I would think of imaginative and I think of creative. Which yeah. and you do a good job of defining those two separately, and that the relationship does seem to be there seems to be one, and so I think it's interesting even that you know of imagination, creative thinking, and that's where, in you know, people say imaginative when they mean creative, you know, in ordinary speech. So I think that might be part of what I'm referring to here. Not that it's like something you know, it's not like all of a sudden we're going to be talking about like uh, symbolic logic or something with imagination, right? It's not like yeah. it's completely separate. Anyway, sorry, I just right. thought that would clarify. No, cool. Yeah, I think I think you're right that in um, ordinary talk, we're probably looser with with our terms um, than philosophers are, and so we definitely, in ordinary speech, just use imaginative and creative as synonyms, and we're just trying to figure. I'm just trying to figure out. Well, we tease things apart. Um, so I guess I'm using imagination to refer to some kind of mental activity. And it's a speculative mental activity. So it's a mental activity that um, one way to put it is it allows us to transcend our present circumstances. So we transcend our present circumstances to either think about them um, differently from how they actually are, whether that's future or possible um, or just in some way different. So I might, um, I mean, I might be, be thinking right now about uh well my son is at disneyland today um oh, there you go uh, so i might be imagining you know i think maybe he's on space mountain right now right so i'm imagining him on the ride um imagining trying to avoid the imagining horror imaginings about um things going wildly wrong on the ride right but this um this uses things i actually know so i know what my son looks like i know what disneyland is like i know what space mountain is like but i combine them and i'm and i'm not at disneyland right now um and so i'm trying to speculate about what's going on with him um, so that would just be one example of an imagining. Now, notice that's a, a fairly realistic imagining, right? Like I'm trying to imagine what's going on with him right now. But then, of course, we could use imagination in all sorts of non-realistic ways as well. And we frequently do. So I might just imagine um, uh, uh, winged, you know, winged horses or um, I might imagine pink elephants or all kinds of crazy creatures. And here again, I'm doing something that ta- that transcends the reality that I'm I'm currently I'm currently in. So I mean maybe we'll come back to this but I think of imagination as serving both practical purposes and fantastical purposes and so we can go on to talk a little bit about that but 
in either case, I'm thinking of imagination as a mental process or a mental activity. It's something that we that we do. We might deliberately do it. We might just find ourselves doing it. Um, we might specifically set ourselves a particular imaginative project. We might find ourselves daydreaming about something and, and realize that we're engaged in some kind of imaginative activity. Um, but in any case, I'm thinking of it as a mental activity. Now, creativity, um, let's just focus on creativity for a second. Creativity is something that it's a term that we sometimes apply to mental processes or mental activities. So when we talk about creative thinking right there, it looks like we're talking about a mental activity. But we also talk about creativity when we apply it and we apply it to um, people. So we describe people as creative. And then we also just describe like things in the world as creative. So a particular painting or a particular book, um, a particular invention. And so there, we're not using the notion of creative to apply to um, an, a mental process or a mental activity because we're talking about either a creative product or a creative person. And when we are talking about the mental activity, um, creative thinking, I think it's pretty natural to think that that what makes the thinking creative is it's it's utilizing our um capabilities of imagination. And then likewise, I think when we have a creative product, we think, oh, well, how did this creative product come to be? Someone used creative thinking, that is, someone used their imagination to produce the idea behind this product. Likewise, when we describe a person as creative, I think we mean they're they have great powers of imagination or great powers of creative thinking. So this is sort of how the two get connected. But one of the things that um, I'm interested in over the course of the discussion of this monograph is to think about what the essential, is there an essential connection between imagination and creativity? So can there be creative products or can there be, let's, let me say it a little, back up a little, can there be creativity without imagination? Um, can there be imagination without, uh, without creativity? And it's going to turn out, depending on whether we're thinking about the mental processes or the products or the people, you know, we're going to see different different connections there. Yes. Yeah. And that's this is good. This me like I always uh, it's always reassuring when I'm in the interview and I'm like, OK, I did understand that part. Yeah. <laughs> cool. No, that's good. Uh, yeah. Which awesome. I'm actually looking at the book over here. I'm not just like gazing off into the distance while you're talking. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, even as you're you're talking here, um, and I can't remember the other words that you used for it, but uh, you set up kind of uh, you, it was fantastic, and um, I can't remember the other one when you talk about the, oh for different kinds of for different kinds of imagination different kinds of imagination uh, in the book yes. you say instructive and transcendent is that or, I do yes. yes and so you said fantastic and what was the other one because I, I found that helpful. I probably said realistic when yeah. I was talking um, to you. So, right. So the terms that I've used, and I use them in, in the book um, because I'd used it in some prior work, but I draw a distinction between what I call, yeah, transcendent imagining and instructive imagining. But if, you know, if we want to think about it, we can think about the more fantastical cases and the more realistic cases um, of imagining. But I mean, there are going to be sort of cross-cutting distinctions in various ways. Um, 
So maybe if I if I put it in terms of, of uses the way I do in the book, I can put it this way. Like, so sometimes we're just engaged in an act of imagination um, just to try to escape from the reality that we're in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's for escapist purposes. So you might be in a boring meeting and you start imagining your upcoming vacation. Um, you might be a child and just playing games of pretend. You might be an adult and playing games of pretend. But in any case, uh, you might be engaged in a game of pretend where you're on the playground and you're imagining that that, I think the example I use in the book is you're imagining that the play structure is a pirate ship, you know, and there's a rival, the children on the play structure are a rival pirate gang. So you're actually imagining all sorts of things while you're engaged in this game of pretend. So you're escaping your reality by doing that. Um, you're transcending your reality by doing that. So um, those are some kinds of acts of imagination where we're where we're engaged in this kind of transcendent or escapist use. But then lots of times we use imagination for practical purposes as well. So the same um, kind of imagining where you're imagining your upcoming vacation might actually not just be for escapist purposes, but you might actually be trying to um, learn, you know, various things. So uh, you might be trying to figure out whether you want to go to the beach or to the mountains, right? And so you're imagining yourself first at the beach and then at the mountains in an effort to learn something like, oh, well, should I buy the, the plane tickets to this place or should I buy the plane tickets to that place, right? And imagination can save us that um, the labor a lot of times of, of actually exploring both paths, right? We ex- imaginatively explore them because we don't have the finances to do both. We have to make choices. Or another example would be, suppose you um, go to a furniture store and you forgot to take the as good measurements as you should have of your living room before you went to the furniture store and you don't want to drive all the way home and then back and there's no one at home to call. So um, you're you're trying to figure out whether this sofa that you're about to buy is going to fit in the space. And so what do you do? Well, you imagine it in the space or you might be trying to figure out whether the sofa you're about to buy can fit through the door like you have a narrow doorway. Can it fit through the door? Like, how are you going to be able to position it or can it fit in your trunk? So what are you going to do? You're going to imaginatively manipulate the sofa. Um, and, you know, sometimes we do this even when we have the sofa right before the doorway, right? Like it's heavy. So we don't want to have to keep lifting it different ways. We first stare at the sofa and imagine, right, how we have to turn it um, so that we we save our, our backs um, some of the physical labor. So anyway, those are that's an example of, of um, imagining being put to a very practical use. Yes, I, I can't tell you how painful that last example is because I am so bad at that. Uh, I can't tell you how many times okay. I have moved something and it was not how I imagined it would be. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Same thing okay. with the, you know, I mean, that's why they have the different, in the book, use the, the paint swatches, right? And uh, that is... Yeah. I, uh, probably not surprising. That is definitely something that I have come to rely on my wife in terms of unless the paint is there on the wall, I, I, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to see it. So uh, that's <laughs> very yeah. useful. Uh, even um, uh, the the pirate wa- uh, park I- idea really struck a chord with me because I have a four and seven year old, and the nearest public park actually has a giant pirate ship. So it was really funny ah. how like the examples you used. Anyways, it just makes uh, it makes so much sense. Um, so even as we we kind of look at those, um, you know, the instructive and the, the transcendent, um, and there, there's so uh, ob- like 
uh, I immediately, when you talk about the vacation, I'm thinking about, you know, I think about the mountain, even if I choose to go to the mountain, when I'm like, oh, I need to buy mosquito spray, right? And that's like the yeah. better your imagination can be, the the better your decision making in many cases, or at least yeah, uh, what it, it gives your decisions more weight, if that makes sense, more uh, information to work with. Um, and I, I think we we see that quite a bit. You know, I I run a digital marketing agency throughout the. Uh, you know, that's my day job. And that's definitely a large part of like, okay, if I was a consumer, how would I respond to this? And that, yeah. that'd be like, th these kind of things are, are ubiquitous. Um, as you talk about like, uh, instructive and transcendent, uh, and maybe I'm getting this confused because I think maybe transcendent gets used twice, but there's also the case where you can transcend the, uh, paradigms of uh uh accepted thought is that mm -hmm. is that a di or is that in the same usage or is that a different is that is that in a different um section well i think that the second use might be in a in a different section where i'm talking about creativity um and so in order to uh for certain things to be truly creative we might think they have to well we use the expression think outside the box right, right. um and when we when we talk about that we're talking about um a kind of transcending of previously accepted norms or solutions or so on um but could i could i go back yeah, for, for one sure. second to something that you were just a couple of things you were just saying because they really resonated with me um, and with the way I'm, I'm thinking about imagination. Um, so I guess two things I wanted to pick up on. So one, um, you were talking about uh, how many times you've, you know, you failed at imagining the sofa correctly or how you need the paint swatches. And, and so you have to rely on your wife. And um, both of those examples, I think they, th those examples bring up two points that I like to try to bring out in my work. So I like to think of imagination as a skill right. and in thinking about it as a skill that brings out sort of two different things that came up in, in your own reflections on what you've done imaginatively. So one is some people are better than others, right? So your wife might be better at imagining paint colors than you are. And, um, in that case, uh, we can see, right. The, the differences in imagination, we can see how, when something's a skill, typically like one person can be better at it than another. A different thing is that we can improve our imagination. So I think people who think that they don't have very finely honed imaginative powers should not just say like, oh, I'm bad. I mean, if they care about it, they shouldn't just say, oh, I'm bad at imagining. So be it. Um, as a general matter, if you're bad at something and, and you care about it, you can work to get better. So I think um, the more imagining we do, and I mean, we can talk more about this, but uh, there, are, there are things that one can do to get better at imagining. We shouldn't just think it's like a, necessarily a fixed capacity. So that, um, I guess, was one thing that I wanted to pick up on um, from, some, from what you said. And then there's a second thing I wanted to pick up on, which I also think is really interesting because you're sort of bringing up examples that um, really get at some of the theory that I'm interested in in the monograph. Um, but you talk about, uh, so when you're imagining the mountains and the mosquito spray, and you, and I think you said something like, um, 
the, well, you said something to the effect of the, the, some of those imaginings might be more probative than others, right? Like some of them might be more helpful than others for getting you to decide on what kind of vacation you want to go with. And I completely agree with that. And I want to say there are um, a lot of different kinds of things we can do to make those imaginings more useful. So first of all, we, in order for our imaginations to be helpful, um, one thing that we do is we draw on past experiences. And so when we have the relevant past experiences or more relevant past experiences, we can draw on those and build from those. And that's going to help us. Right. So if you've, if maybe you're trying to figure out, um, uh, where to go on vacation and you've never been to like the Rocky mountains, but you've been to some other mountain ranges. And so you sort of, the way I put it sometimes is you, we do what, what's called imaginative scaffolding. So we scaffold out from the experiences that we've had to ones that we've never had by combining resources, experiential resources and imagination. And so one thing to be a better imaginer is you want to call you. Well, first of all, if you have more experiential resources, that's going to help you. But second of all, if you're able to manipulate and combine the imaginative resources that you have in more useful ways um, or well, depending on what, what one wants to do with them, if you can sort of pick the right combinations, then you'll be able to leverage those to get further in imagination. So that's what I, that's, I think imagination builds and combines and transposes all of the different experiential elements. And we're moving towards um, trying to get to experiences that we haven't had by, by, doing all of that imaginative work from experiences um, that we have had. Yeah. And what I, I love what you, you said, and I don't know that I have any answers to this particular point, but one thing is that imagination is incredibly powerful, right? We, we've discussed that in yeah. a couple of different ways. But one thing that's really fascinating is it can actually be harmful. Uh, mm. So <laughs> uh, it's just as a, a kind of silly example, when you talk about vacation, Generally, uh, if someone is really engaging their imagination with uh, vacation, it creates certain expectations. And if those expectations are not met, even if it's a good vacation, like if you you have like this idea, um, like oh, the cabin in the in the woods in the mountains that uh, I'm renting has a hot tub, and you get up there and you end up having a lot of great conversations, wonderful dinners, and get you know hikes with your family or you know whatever you do but for some reason the hot tub is broken when you get there you even get like a refund but you're like you just had in your mind you know like a cool night's breeze and you're on the the patio in the hot tub and and you're just sitting there in the rocking chair talking to your family and you should be enjoying the moment but all you can think about is ah oh, i wish i was in the hot tub right now and it's so it's it's really interesting how it's like a double edged sword how it, it can help us predict the future but it also can uh hinder us if we, if we don't if we can't let go of the expectations it creates so i don't know that, i don't know yeah, where else to go with that but anyways go ahead no i i think it's a really interesting point um i mean imagination can set up as you say imagination can set up various expectations for us and we're always disappointed when our expectations aren't met so there i guess i would just maybe um 
because I'm so pro imagination, but I, I'm not so sure that I would I would blame imagination there. Um, I might blame the cabin owners for not having their um, hot tub working, um, but also it has something to do with the expectations that come out of the imaginative exercise, right? I mean, there's a sense in which you were right. I mean, if 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 the place was advertised with a working hot tub, then you were right to imagine, right? you know, um, the evening in the hot tub, right? So you're imagining kind of didn't do anything wrong there. I mean, should you have also imagined, you know, oh, well, what if the hot tub is broken? Well, maybe, um, but it's more... Uh, there, we might say it's more. My dog is crying. Sorry, no worries. she's bringing me a toy. She's bringing me a toy. So just so you all know, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna um, lie. I saw always. like some brown fur kind of duck behind. Yeah. Yes, I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like so that's either a I, dog or to... an undergrad is like trying to grab some graded papers. No, I don't. No, there's no... <laughs> Gosh, don't start any rumors. <laughs> there are two little puppies behind oh, me, yeah. so that's what's going on. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In any case, what I was going to say is, um, you know, we have to think about like our own ability to let things go, right? And so it might be not so much what that the imagination hindered us, but our inability to let go of what we've imagined. And so there we might think, that it has to do with some other, you know, personality traits, be it um, stubbornness or just be it um, a certain kind of like inflexibility. You know, I can't adapt when the plans change. Now, maybe we can use imagination to become more flexible mm -hmm. and more adaptable because if we're able to imagine not just scenario A, but scenario B and C, um, then we can... Uh, maybe get ourselves out of that kind of inflexible thinking. Um, but anyway, yeah. I don't want to just blame, blame imagination when, when your vacation goes wrong. You might think there are other ways that imagination can harm us um, or hinder us. I, I don't want to dismiss the idea too quickly. I wasn't sure what kind of example you were going to bring up when you said it. But um, I mean, I was talking before about uh, imagining my son at Space Mountain. And um, some people, you know, kind of can't help themselves from engaging in these sort of, especially parents, I think, um, can't yeah. help themselves, but engage in these kind of nightmare imaginings, right? About um, bad things happening to other people or bad things happening to our kids. And, and we sort of keep finding ourselves dwelling on these painful or, or problematic or, or, I don't know, doomsday, maybe that's what I'm looking for, doomsday imaginings. And um, we might think we'd be better off, you know, not imagining at all than engaging in these doomsday kinds of imaginings. So if they're if the imaginings are not doing anything productive for us, um, then that might be a way that they hinder us. Also, if we're imagining so much, you know, maybe again, daydreaming. So let's not worry about the instructive imaginings for a second, but we're doing this kind of escapist or transcendent kind of daydreaming imagining and we're not tuning into our reality, but we're always tuning out. I mean, that can be a problem too, but it wouldn't be surprising there because there are so many, it's not just imagination. There are like a gazillion things that are fine in moderation, but do them too much yeah. and it's problems. It wouldn't be surprising that that were true for imagining as well. Well, so. even as we were talking, uh, I would definitely say it's the expectation that's the problem and not, um, but uh, I, I think, you know, and we kind of talked about this with just making good decisions, good, like imagination, the power of it is that it gives weight to things. 
So it makes expectations more powerful. It's not the imagination's mm -hmm. fault per se. Uh, and, you know, this is obviously me spitballing. So feel free to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just, I, this is just a really interesting train of thought to me. Even as you're talking about the fear that the parents have, it's not necessarily that thinking about those things is the problem. It's the fear that and the worry that accompanies it. But obviously, the, the more vivid that imagination is, the more it's going to give weight to those that fear, that worry, that sort of thing. And that's, I think, it more a symptom of its power than of its uh, it being problematic. But anyways, yeah. that, that's, um, uh, it's just, it, it's so interesting how, you know, we, we don't talk about it much, but it's so ubiquitous. And everyone, as much as like, yes, you can develop it as a skill, everyone really does imagine quite a bit, right? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, uh, when I teach an undergraduate seminar on imagination, um, one of the activities I like to do on the first day of class is just to ask people, um, my students, to give an example of a way in which imagination has factored in their life. I mean, a it can be a small example, right? Just like what, when's sometime you engaged in an exercise of imagining or what, what do you associate imagining with, with your own life? And it's just so interesting, the range of um, different kinds of examples that I get, you know, whether it's someone who's really into music and talks about the way that imagination interacts with their, either their, their listening to music or their composing music, or they're trying to understand music, or there'll be someone else who talks about um, engagement with fiction, right? Reading books or watching movies. Um, and then there'll be someone else talking about a certain kind of problem solving. Um, someone else might, I mean, these are college students, so they might talk about um, trying to make the decision of where to go to college, you know? And so they imagined themselves first at the one institution and then at the other institution and tried to imagine, you know, what life would be like at these at these different colleges. Anyway, I get so many different examples. And I've never had a student say, oh, no, I, I just, imagination's never, I, I just never imagine anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, we definitely have people who talk about imagining more, imagining less, and how much of a role it plays in their life. But yeah, I've never had a student, when I ask them to do that exercise, I've never had a student who says, nope, no imagination in my life. It just doesn't, doesn't factor in. So you know, it's not, it's just anecdotal, but yes, I, I, I have, I'm batting, you know, a thousand on that one. Yeah, no, exactly. no, no non-imaginers, um, among my students anyway. I don't know, maybe the ones who don't imagine don't take classes called imagination, <laughs> but. It is a biased sample, but I think, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned this earlier and I, you even mentioned it, uh, in this, the, that you're passing examples. Um, when you talked about training and it does, and I've seen mm -hmm. this in my own life, uh, I, I mentioned for digital marketing that I have to think about the way customers think and probably one of the most useful tools has been, uh, my voracious fiction reading, right? Like, ah, that, like, yeah. and so uh, you mentioned Martha Nussbaum and empathy. Um, you want to talk a little bit about like, uh, that and other training methods, if I can, you know, put it that way, obviously there's. We, we don't have like uh, imagination coaches, though. Maybe we should. Yeah, I wish we did. Um, so, right. So I think earlier when I was saying that I think of imagination as a skill and I, and I think that we can do various things to train our imagination. Um, 
I should say, you know, it's not like I think we hire a coach necessarily or we um, have, you know, some book of imagination exercises, but there are all different sorts of things that I think we can do, some of which we just naturally do anyway to improve our imagination. So um, Martha Nussbaum, whose work I I mentioned um, in the monograph, talks about how children um, learn to understand others and learn to be able to empathize with others via their engagement with stories. And so she gives the example, um, she, she uses the example of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. So Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, how I wonder what you are. And she says, when the child starts to wonder about the star, um, the child is starting to imagine the inner lives of others. Now, granted, stars, as far as I know, don't have inner lives, but it's this idea of imagining the the inner lives of others that starts with just this like very early exposure to nursery rhymes. And as we engage with increasingly sophisticated works of storytelling, um, whether it's uh, on the written page or in movies or whatever, but let's just talk about books just because it's easier to focus on one thing. As we, um, we read more and more, we start to imagine the scenes that are presented and we start to imagine the emotions of the characters. And each time we're reading, I think we're training our imagination in various ways. So we train our imagination. I mean, think of all the kinds of things we do when we read books. I mean, you might not do all of them, but various people do. So you might try to guess the ending, right? You might try to imagine the ending. Or when you finish a book, if the ending isn't what you imagined, or or if you don't, maybe you didn't imagine the ending of this one, but you um, aren't that happy about the way the book ended. And so you might imagine alternate endings, like what would have happened if this character did this? Or you might, you know, when we're reading the book, we're, we're often trying to imagine, um, you know, who the villain is, right? Who right. Do, who done it? Um, and we and we try to mine the book for clues. So anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with empathy or imaginative, this kind of imaginative exploration of other minds, but those are just imagination training. Now, with respect to empathy in particular, when we read, um, re- one, one reason that, that reading can sort of train our capacity for this kind of imaginative exploration of other minds is that we get a lot of information from the book that we don't necessarily have when we're just talking to people in everyday life. So, you know, right now I can see a particular expression on your face, but I don't have like access to your inner thoughts. Whereas in a book, right, I'm going to get this detailed description either from the narrator or maybe the books in the first person. So I actually get it from the character themselves that explains how they're feeling in a given situation. And so we learn a lot about the minds of others from reading, and it's a way to sort of practice our empathetic explorations and our imaginative simulations of other minds. So I think um, fiction is a great, great tool. I mean, I, I love fiction independently, but fiction is a great, great tool for the cultivation of imagination, um, both empathetic imagination and other kinds of imagination. Um, yeah, which you, I think you list as like, propositional and sensory, correct? And then there's experiential, which it kind of lines up with empathy. Am I correct in understanding that? Yeah, so there are different kinds of imagination. So sometimes, um, well, here's an example. So I might imagine, um, 
that there is a tray of brownies in the kitchen, right? So notice there I'm imagining a proposition like that there's, that is like a kind of full fact um, that there's a tray of brownies in the kitchen. Okay. Now, another thing I might do is I might just imagine the brownies themselves. So maybe I'm imagining what they look like, or I'm imagining what they smell like or what they taste like. Right. And so I'm not really taking an, an attitude towards a proposition. I'm just like focused on the brownies as the object. Um, and notice when I do take the attitude for to the proposition, like the propositional imagining, I might have a mental image of the brownies. I might not, right? But when I'm imagining the brownies themselves, it looks like, uh, well, sorry, I should back up a second. I think if it's really imagining, we have an image. Not everyone agrees with me on that. So I'm just like kind of putting that aside for a second. <laughs> but um, but but in any case, with the propositional imagining, the point is that we're sort of focused on this this like fact. Okay. Um, but then we might just focus on the brownies, how they smell, um, what they taste like. And so there it looks like we're calling up some kind of image, but notice the image I'm using image in a, in a expanded sense. So I'm not just talking about visual images and in, in the way that I'm using the notion of image, we can talk about auditory images or gustatory images or olfactory images, right? So we can talk about them in any sense. Now, this is the cruelest example you've used. I'm just going to say <laughs> the brownies. Oh, are you hungry? Okay, I am now. Um, okay. No, no, no. It's fine. Well, I, I, uh, you know, I like brownies. I gotta say. Yeah, I get. Um, no, you're like just like how they taste and how they smell. Yeah, and I was just like, right. I was like, well, well okay. I could feel it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that suggests that you're using your powers of imagination. I right? very much so. Like, no, no, no. no. Uh, yeah, obviously that's smell, tongue in cheek. But uh, yeah, it was very. Um, so um, I'm sure I could come up with crueler examples. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, oh, experiential imagining was the was the last one I wanted right. to say. So you might um, you might imagine um, tasting the brownies, right? Yeah, I mean that is you're putting yourself into the imagining. So you're you're imagining specifically at it sort of from the inside, like the experience. And so that would be experiential imagining. And so yeah, when we engage in um, empathy, like when we're empathizing with someone else, if we're really calling so if i'm trying to empathize with someone who's just told me a story about something terrible that happened to them and i'm trying to understand what they're feeling and i'm imagine the way we often put this is i'm like imaginatively putting myself in their shoes right if i'm calling up that um that kind of feeling calling up that kind of experience then yeah that's a kind of experiential imagining so. yeah no absolutely uh and it's funny to me how um as we're talking about this uh, I can think of even individual books that tend to lean into different, these different types. Right. Um, oh, so, cool. yeah. So like we talk about propositional, like I, uh, I mean, this is, these are terrible examples, but I tend to prefer more experiential empathetic books. Like I feel like it accomplishes mm -hmm. something more for me and I like the way I feel afterwards, but it demands more from me versus like yeah. sometimes, you know, if I've been reading a lot of philosophy, so I'm, I'm doing uh several a week right now because my wife is due in august so I, I for some reason yeah this is me using experiential imagination i didn't think my wife would appreciate me saying hey honey i know you have a four and seven year old and you have the newborn but i'm not gonna you know i'm gonna go i have to go off and do a podcast so i'm getting ahead <laughs> and so i i'm good job yeah. good job <laughs> um uh, I might not be great at imagination but i i have enough for that yeah the uh, <laughs> but as we yeah. um you know, 
uh, if I've been doing a lot of heavy reading, I find myself gravitating more towards uh, maybe sensory or propositional. Like there's uh, this vampire hunter series that I enjoy reading. It's a light novel and it's that you can't like the characters are not a sec- uh, like very deep, right? They're, <laughs> they're just like, it's a lot of action. It's a lot of like really fantastic uh, uh, set pieces and that sort of thing. But it's not like something where, you know, uh, I started to read N.K. Jemison's um, uh, trilogy. trilogy. Yes. And yeah. I started to read it and it's so good. I can tell it's going to be good. And I was like, this is good. This is going to emotionally hurt me. I have to <laughs> I need to wait until I have time to process this. You know, it's like uh, I'll read Haruki Murakami and afterwards I just feel so fragile um, or like, uh, you know, uh, I love uh, I'm trying to work my way through Proust rather large. Um, and it's the same thing where it's like it demands more from you. And uh, I, I think, you know, maybe that's the the training happening, you know, in some ways. But also <laughs> it's just like any kind of training. It's uh, it's more it's more intense. And it seems to line up with um, the you know, the different types of imagining that are going on. Or am I understanding that correctly? No, I, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I hadn't really, I have to confess, I haven't really thought a lot about how, um, what kinds of different books demand different kinds of imagining from us. So I really like the examples that you were giving. So for example, in the dragon books where the characters aren't deep, right, but maybe there's a lot of world building or something like that. And so you're really trying to imagine the world that's being presented and that's the demanding imaginative task, right? Not so much understanding like why the characters did this because it's all really obvious, but you're, but they're set in a world that's like got dragons and, you know, has all these different cultures or um, uh, I don't know, various customs and you're trying to understand all of that. And so there's a different kind of imaginative demand um, I mean, with, you know, it's funny you bring up the Broken Earth trilogy and Kay Jemison. I, I love that trilogy. I hope you find that before oh, your next baby is born, um, because you won't have uh, time to really for, for you yes. anyway, you yes. won't have time for anything, um, basically. <laughs> but um, the Broken Earth trilogy, uh, I, I started reading the first one in the trilogy in March of 2020, right? Like, so I got our class, our, our, our college shut down and I got sent home, you know, and so I'm going to do all my virtual teaching and I, and I, I pick up this cause it's a, you know, a book that so many people had recommended to me. And it's like, it starts off with like the end of the world. <laughs> It's like, I don't know, you know, this is hitting a little close to home, right? I mean, I can't remember now the first sentence. I used to have it memorized, but it's something like, let, let's start at the end of the world or something yes. like that. And it's not just like and, the whole world. It's also like this mom and her, like, this is not spoilers. This is the first chapter. It's like a mom and her child. And I'm like, oh, this is heavy. I'm like, I'm going to open this up in a month. <laughs> no, it's a really good series and you should come back to that. But um but what I was going to say about that book is, I mean, there's so many different kinds of imaginings we have to do in, in a book like that, because, I mean, first of all, we're, uh, I think, deliberately left a little at sea about what kind of world we're in in that book. And um, we, you know, we learn as we go. We're not, it's not laid out. The world building is not done in advance. It's parceled out to us stingily as we go. Um, and so we're doing a lot of that kind of imagining, but then there is, um, a lot of 
deep kind of engagement with the characters and their motivations. And so there's a lot of, I think, imagining of what these characters are going through at various times. So that book is going to be um, both imaginatively, once you finally read it, the trilogy, the whole trilogy, it's going to be both imaginatively demanding, but also imaginatively enriching, right. um, remarkably so, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, back to the basic point you were making, I think um, books can both train our imaginations and also stretch our imaginations in, in different ways based on what's going on in them. Um, and that shouldn't be surprising. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, I want to be, um, you know, respectful of your time uh, and wait, we're, get, we're drawing to a close here, but I did want to touch briefly on creativity. Um, sure. Yeah, you talk about value and, and novelty as being kind of like two of the main conditions, but then there's some talk about agency and surprising. Do you mind just uh, just giving a, a brief overview of that? I <laughs> I know that's sure. that's a, no, a big order, but absolutely. Um, so I guess the basic question that I start off with, and yeah, we have talked almost solely about imagination, which isn't that surprising because that's where my my research um, primarily concerns. But yeah, we should give creativity its due as well. Um, so when I start off talking about creativity in this monograph, I want to try and understand what creativity is, and so. It, I mean, it seems really basic, I guess, that in order for something to count as creative, there's got to be some kind of novelty involved. There's got to be some kind of newness, right? right? Um, but then there's this further question like, oh, well, does everything that's new um, count as creative? Like just because it's something that's never been seen before, does that mean it's creative? And, you know, you might not think so, right? Like, oh... So not every ch doodle um, that your child does, you know, every scribble, right? Like, oh, well, no one might have scribbled exactly that way before, but uh, is that really creative, right? Or I use my, I mean, in the book, I use the example of I use my iPhone predictive text function, you know, right. to tap out a sentence and it's like, okay, that sentence, well, first of all, it's probably not even a sentence, but anyway, that collection of words maybe has never been produced before, um, but so it's novel, but is it creative? It doesn't really seem so. And so looks like there's something else required for creativity. And what philosophers tend to um, put there is, is, some, is some kind of value. Now, value here, think of it in a really deflationary sense. It doesn't have to have any great monetary value or, or value in any, I mean, it doesn't have to be great value in any sense. But the point is, is it adds something. It brings something positive. Um, now, even the value requirement for creativity is um, not always, I mean, it's, it's disputed, uh, so not everyone agrees with it. So we can talk about certain kinds of things that seem to um, lack value or certain kinds of things that um, might have negative value. So one example that comes up, um, speaking of cruelty, would be uh, you might you might think of some kind of uh, torturer or serial killer or something who de who devises these incredibly novel methods of torture, um, and those don't really bring positive value to the world. Maybe it's um, uh, maybe he describes brownies to prisoners. That's what. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Those are the those are the methods of torture. Yeah, good one. Um, 
Right. Oh, you think you're starving now? Let me <laughs> let me describe some brownies to you. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to know, yeah. like, with the listeners, like, which what they think about these um, uh, torture methods. Let's just suppose that they're new. Should we describe them as creative or not? Um, there's definitely something new about them, but are they creative? Insofar as we're disinclined to to use the um, notion of creativity just to describe that might be because we're thinking of calling something creative as a kind of praise, right? Or we think of the thing that's that's creative as bringing some kind of value. Also, other examples that come up, um, false theories, like a false theory, you might think it's very creative, but since it's false, it doesn't really have any value. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we could find a way in which it has value um, in that it leads to a detailed understanding subsequently or something like that. But in any case, there's ways to push on the value requirement. Now, another requirement that um, often comes up in discussions of creativity is whether um, you can be creative by accident. Um, doesn't matter whether you've been doing it on purpose. Uh, and so that's where we might think that we require some agency there for something to count as creative. Now, I mentioned, I think I mentioned before, I'm losing track. But I think I talked about the fact that we can refer to people as creative or products as creative yes. or the processes as creative. Right. But so if we're talking about a product now, okay, so we're talking about, you know, like this painting or, or, or this invention, and we're asking whether it can be creative or not, and we're talking about agency, what we mean is something like, in order for it to be creative, does it have to be the result of an intentional process, right? Or can it be creative um, even if it happened by accident. So some scientific discoveries were merely accidental. Um, vulcanized rubber still- is the one that you mentioned in the book. Vulcanized yes. rubber is the one in the book. So it turns out Goodyear was just like trying everything, right? To figure out what substance was going to work. And then what was it in the end? Cream cheese. I don't know. He tried cream cheese. He tried this. He tried that. Just like trying to find something Um, that would work. And then one day the rubber came accidentally in contact with something and that's how we figured it out. But I mean, you can think of all sorts of other examples of accidental discoveries that, you know, when we look at the discovery itself, it it sort of like looks like it's creative, but then when we find out it happened by accident, sometimes we want to pull back on our um, attribution of creativity there, which suggests that we're requiring some kind of agency. And I think another example I use in the monograph is you know, um, not to pick on my, I actually have two sons and this could happen for, with either of them. Um, but it's my older one who walks around with his uh, AirPods in all the time. And so, you know, he might like, actually my younger son has, has over the ear headphones. So he, it could happen to him too, but you know, they knock something in the kitchen, like a bottle of ketchup, don't even notice. Um, maybe they just pretend now that I'm talking, I'm like, maybe it's just that they pretend they don't notice. But in any case, they knock the bottle of ketchup, spatters all over the floor in a very interesting pattern. You know, maybe this pattern is novel. Maybe for some reason it has value. Um, but are we going to call it creative? Well, it was just by happened by them knocking the ketchup bottle off. Um, so again, insofar as we're not inclined to describe that ketchup splatter drawing um, as creative, it probably means that we're thinking of creativity as needing to result from co- some kind of agency. And notice that that's kind of where imagination can come in also, um, because it's by using that mental process of imagination as opposed to just like an elbow knocking, 
um, using that process of imagination that we can um, intentionally guide the creative processes and put some of our agency into it. Absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you uh, for coming on. And uh, I believe you said it's coming out in August, which this will be coming out around uh, very, you know, I'm, I'm a little further out in production schedule now, so it'll be close to August. So your uh, monograph slash book slash yeah. um, great introduction to uh, thank you. imagination and creative thinking will be coming out. But uh, just as we wrap up here, what's uh, what would you leave to our listeners about imagination and creative thinking? What so what what's my final parting words? Yes. What, um, what are your final parting words of wisdom? Yes. Um. Oh, gosh, that, you know, you think of all the questions, that one shouldn't trip me up. But um, I guess I'll say a couple of things. Um, So first of all, I mean, one thing that um, already came out over the course of our discussion with respect to imagination, but I'll say the same thing about creativity, is I, I like to emphasize that these things are not necessarily fixed capacities. And so we can push ourselves to be more imaginative, we can push ourselves to be more creative, we can work to train our imagination, we can work to um, do various things that inculcate um, creative tendencies in us. And so I guess one, I'll, I'll, I'll say one other thing, but what my first parting word would be, don't think of them as fixed capacities, think of them as skills. And I think that's useful for all of us. And then another point that came up, my other parting thought, I guess I would want to just say something about the ubiquity and importance of imagination and creativity for our lives. Mm. Um, And I really do think that they're woven into the fabric of our lives and that we can understand a lot about ourselves and about humanity um, and just about our world um, via thinking about imagination and creativity. And so sometimes in philosophy, the more sort of rational capacities, you know, get, um, all of the attention. And I kind of think we can learn quite a bit from focusing our attention on imagination. Yeah. Dr. Kine, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Okay.